0: Welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. My name is Lauren Bongiorno, nationally board-certified health coach and founder and CEO of Risley Health, where we help people and families impacted by type 1 diabetes take ownership over their lives so that they can transform with more freedom and confidence. Everyone has a different reason to be here. You might be seeking knowledge, support, or community. But at your core, I know that you long for something deeper. You're here for Transformation. And that's what the Reclaim Your Rise podcast is all about.
1: That's really important, too, like recognizing, oh, I, I actually may be really grumpy right now because my blood sugar is out of range and this is my grumpy space. And so, how do I care for myself and also communicate to the people around me that that's what's going on? Having a family member ask, Are you okay? What can I do for you right now? Sometimes just that verbal input is too much for us. And so, it's okay to agree on emojis or a nonverbal cue of some sort
0: a quick reminder before we start the show that nothing you hear on the reclaim your rise podcast should be a substitute for personalized professional medical advice please always consult your physician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet insulin dosages or healthcare plan Hello everyone and welcome back to Reclaim Your Rise. I am really excited to share today's guest and episode with you. Today I have Bria Didado on the show, who is a dual board certified and licensed family and psychiatric nurse practitioner in Oregon and who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 38. In this episode, we talk a lot about the connection between blood sugars and cognitive function, diabetes distress and burnout, getting diagnosed as an adult, navigating anxiety that is heavily present for many people during the first year of diagnosis, and that can persist for many years after. Bria's experience with neuropathy and tips for how to communicate with your family and friends what you need for them when your blood sugar is high or low. That part was one of my favorites of everything that we talked about today. So um, there's something for everyone in this episode and Bria has a lot to share. So without further ado, help me welcome my guest today, Bria, and let's rise. Bria, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. So glad to be here. Yay. So let's dive right into the anchor question that we ask all guests. I think it's a great um, great question to just use as a launch pad for the rest of the conversation. And that is, can you share a story of a time that you reclaimed your rise with type 1 diabetes? So a time where you really felt like you rose above the challenges, the limitations that diabetes um, tends to want to put on us sometimes.
1: Just one story I think is actually harder to select. I think for me learning how to continue to mountain bike after I was diagnosed was, was one of the big wins, um, because the anxiety that comes with a new diagnosis, uh, learning how to, you know, dose insulin, exercise safely, uh, and then mountain biking as a sport, you know, you're really intensely doing cardio out in nature for hours, far away from people and resources, um, and learning how to confidently manage and feel safe when I'm out on the trail and engaging in that sport was, was something that I'm still to this day very proud of and that I'm able to do it.
0: So for you, is exercise a big part of your, your life?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think just from the nature of the work that I do, uh, from how I grew up, uh, getting outside and getting like connecting with nature is, is something that really preserves my mental health and my physical health and I'm not a massive athlete or anything. I'm a lady in my forties, just mountain biking, hiking, skiing. You know, I I do it really just for the joy of like forcing me to be connected to nature and to myself and to the moment Mm. versus being so distracted by everything else in life. So yeah, it's a big part of my life.
0: That's one thing that I do see about people who live out West. I know you're in Oregon. It's just the, the, there's not a lot of limit on the age of like the, the people who are active, like you see when I'm, you know, I love being in like Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and just the seven-year-olds on mountain bikes, like biking and hiking and all that. And you're like, you just don't get that on the East Coast. And I – I think it's, to your point, such a, a health, part of health and, and mental health as well, which we're going to talk about a lot today. So I think it's important, Bria, for, to go back a little bit to understand your, your diagnosis and what that looked like for you. So do you mm-hmm. think you can share a little bit of, of that with us?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I was 38 when I was diagnosed. I was actually, at the time, working full-time as a family nurse practitioner at a community health clinic in California. Very stressful job for anyone who's never done it. I was also in a doctoral program for my doctorate degree, and I was in a post-master's program for psychiatry. Uh, my daughter was a senior in high school, and so like from a stress standpoint of life, very high stress, very busy, uh, started to notice pretty extreme weight loss pretty quickly and uh, didn't really think much of it at first. Uh, but I am a Midwestern gal genetically, and I never lose weight like that, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh it was, it was interesting. I would buy pants and like two weeks later they wouldn't fit. And I was working with a bunch of other physicians and nurse practitioners, and at some point they started to notice it too that I was dropping weight really quickly. My other symptom was the brain fog was probably the most intense thing I had ever experienced in my life. Um, and it was in my psychiatry rotation that I noticed. I was having trouble focusing on words and comprehending things that people were saying to me. At one point post lunch, I realized Mm. there was a patient speaking to me and I was like, are they speaking English? Because I can't like, what they're saying to me was just like not penetrating. Lord only knows what my blood sugar was that day. Anyway, I finally went into my primary care and had blood work done and um, was called the next week. Uh, after being violently ill all weekend by my primary cares nurse to say, Hey, you have diabetes. We want to make sure you're, you're going to come into the office in a couple of days. And I didn't believe them. And I actually went into the lab and checked my glucose and it was 458 or something that day. I uh, was incredibly ill and I was a great example of how people cannot make good decisions for themselves (laughs) when they're so ill and need someone to be an advocate. So even as a medical professional Um, I worked the rest of the day, uh, got through my day, went home. I called out sick for the rest of the week because I knew I was going to need care. I knew I was a type one based on the blood work. Um, and then I sat there and I think it was like a day or two later, I called my doctor and said, Hey, does somebody want to give me medicine? (laughs) Like my blood sugar is so high and I'm not getting any treatment. I should probably get some care. And uh, they were like, no, we'll just talk to you when you come in. And oh. again, I, you know, I'm a trained medical professional, but the decisions I was making with my blood sugar being so high, um, I just, I couldn't make safe decisions for myself and had to rely on my team. Thankfully, I survived all of that stuff and uh, got started on insulin and learned how to be a type one diabetic.
0: Oh, adult diagnoses. Like that's, it's, it's tough. Like you have your life, like you're, you're on your path. You have your life. You're like, mm-hmm. there's, I didn't really, you know. Carve out time today to get diagnosed with a type, of di- type of diabetes. That wasn't <laughs> like on the agenda of my calls. Um, for you, did you? What was the initial like? Even just like six months like for you, or or was there a um, a time period where you felt like it was really hard? And or did you kind of like you know did that happen faster for you because you had a medical professional you know background? Was it like a month? Like what was that time frame look like and what was it like for you?
1: Well, yeah. Get, so my A1C at diagnosis was 14. Uh, and then my next A1C after that was like 5.8. I slammed my blood sugar down pretty quickly,
0: not knowing
1: also that that has a consequence. And I ended up with some treatment induced neuropathy, uh, which mm-hmm. my own medical team didn't even know that what that was. And then I ended up looking it up and researching um, why my feet were in so much pain. So I was able to get to what would be considered like a a well-managed A1C and target at the time. But the consequence of it was I was terrified and exhausted and anxious because as medical professionals, we understand what the complications are. And especially for someone like myself, I worked in hospitals, um, critical care, cardiology, oncology for years, and you see the worst of everything. And so you begin to believe that that will be your future when you get a diagnosis like this, not knowing that there's a whole lot of other um, options for what your life is going to look like. So the beginning, um, the first six months to a year, I think is, is the hardest. And I think that's true for most people, because there's just such a huge learning curve. And I don't think there's any time that you get a type one diagnosis that is easy. You know, the, the challenges that kids get versus adolescents, young adults, and um, uh, are the more mature diagnoses, it's all hard. It's just hard in different ways.
0: I agree with that for sure. I, I was diagnosed at seven years old and I it was, you yeah. know, it was easy when it happened, but then later on in life, when I realized I didn't process that diagnosis, like then it became hard, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, you know, different for everybody and hard and to each one's ways. I want to go back to something that you said, because we've never talked about it on the podcast before. And I, and I get a lot of questions about it, which is neuropathy. So do you think that you, would you be open to sharing a little bit about your experience um, with that and, and what that's, what that's like and, and what that, is it something that you reversed or is there still like, you know, maintenance, but like, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, mine was treatment induced. So it was because I had reduced my blood sugar so quickly. Uh, it was incredibly uncomfortable. It did last for probably the first like five months, really bad heel and bottom of my feet pain. I would, when I would sit on the couch, I'd have to like elevate my feet because it would just help to not have anything on them, not having them touching anything. I think the challenge in the beginning was that it was happening and I would talk to my medical team about it and they would say, well, your A1C is fine. You, you can't be experiencing these symptoms, which, you know, of course is one of the challenges overall or the problems in our medical system is that unless a provider understands all of the nuances of, of the symptoms that someone is experiencing, they have a hard time validating the experience for people. And so you start to feel like, am I losing my mind because I'm having these symptoms (laughs) or this experience, but this person tells me that it couldn't possibly be true. Um, But thankfully, you know, I was able, I have a lot of resources because I am a medical provider and found out what it was and how to manage it. And it did um, resolve over time. So I'm very lucky that it's not permanent because I know how uncomfortable it is.
0: How frustrating that is. I know we've all and everyone listening can relate where you've had that experience where you're going to somebody who is supposed to be helping you and, and have the answers and you're the one having to advocate for yourself because you have this like mm-hmm. this deep belief that like, no, I know there's something wrong here and like it's, it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the diagnosis has made you approach work with your patients differently and if so, what way?
1: Yes. I hope that I'm a more, uh, empathetic and compassionate medical provider. I do know, and mental health provider. I do know that, um, after my own diagnosis, I ended up reaching out to some of my previous primary care patients and apologized for some of the conversations that we had had because I just felt like there was so much misinformation and, um, Inappropriate information that we get taught as, as health professionals that is, you know, it's based in statistics and it's based in, you know, how actuaries reimburse and, and manage payment to healthcare. It has nothing to do with like quality outcomes for people living with chronic illness. My hope is someday that we get better and have better conversations with people about managing diabetes, all types, all types are really challenging for people. Um, And understanding that things like a glucose number or an A1C or a time and range, you know, these are all just data points that we need to be using to make informed decisions about how to care for ourselves in these moments, but that they are not a measure of our worth or our commitment or the sacrifices that we've already made to manage our health or to take care of ourselves. Uh, And and there is an overemphasis all of Mm -hmm. the time in our health system about single data points. Mm -hmm. Oh, your blood pressure is this. Oh, your body mass is this. Oh, your A1C is this. Um, and it really minimizes the human experience and the suffering that they endure on a day-to-day basis. So I hope that I approach it better.
0: Well said. And I do think that just looking at the data, what it also does is it 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 skips over people who are actually struggling, who can't reach out to say that they're struggling because on paper, they look fine. So A1Cs of a five point, you know, but in the fives, yeah. oh, Check good. Let's fill your prescriptions next. Let's focus on the person who's quote unquote non-compliant sure. and has high ones. It's like no, actually, like they there's a story behind every number, yeah. and that lived experience is really you know important. So yeah, for for you going back into your to your diagnosis journey, like what are the things that you feel helped you in the first let's say you know year of coping, grieving. Mm-hmm. um like if you were to look at yourself as a case study mm-hmm.
1: yeah i think in the beginning i learned a lot from the community uh thankfully i i do believe that i learned more from the actual community and community resources than from any of my um like vetted medical information because it doesn't touch on the lived experience uh i will say something that helped me was learning how to really take control of my anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety in the beginning. Um, and I know I've talked to other people with diabetes who've mentioned the same, that I learned the importance of understanding how to ensure my safety so that I is explored. How much insulin do I need? How am I going to do this um, activity? How am I going to manage this you know, meal at this restaurant? That just focus on being safe in the beginning. So what are my numbers? Am I really at risk of DKA or am I at risk of having a low? If those things aren't occurring, I know that with tools and with time and breath work, like I can get through this and I can do this. And the more I pushed back against the anxiety and the fear and had the lived experiences, the more my confidence grew and I continued to live my life, you know, still interrupted by diabetes, but living it to the the best of my capacity.
0: Hmm. That piece of anxiety is so real for people, you know, in that especially in that first year, but also if they yeah. don't learn those tools around how to feel safe in their body, that persists, right? That can persist yeah. into 10, 15, you know, 20 years, and it really is that foundational first, let's say year and chunk of time that if the tools are limited, a lot of people walk around like what what am i missing here because i just feel like i'm you know blindly walking around with insulin on board and i really don't know what's going to happen right. there's no predictability element to it so right. it's you know it, it's around the scene that we're talking about really what's coming up is advocating right advocating for the right. pieces that you're missing the educational gaps all of that um you being a dual board certified you know family and psychiatric nurse practitioner are there patients that you work with like that have anxiety that you like is it anxiety ADHD like what are the challenges that come up that you also recognize come up largely in the diabetes community
1: um i do so i do have uh, local like endocrinologists and primary care who will refer people to work with me um who are maybe are having some like burnout or distress or they just want to work with somebody who knows what it's like mm. to live with diabetes um Anxiety is a big barrier. It's, it's huge at first diagnosis. So I do work with a lot of people who've just been diagnosed adults um, or supporting families of kiddos who've just been diagnosed. There is just so much like fear in the beginning because it's such a big change and you're handed a medication that there's all of this fear around that too, right? Don't take too much. Or there's a consequence that could be lethal. Don't, don't. And if you don't take enough, you're going to end up in the hospital. And so as much as it's important for us to understand what those like safety thresholds are, we also don't want those to become barriers to living, right? And I see both things happen as a result. Like some people are so anxious that they are scared to engage in using their insulin, and um, and it really limits, you know, how their quality of their life experience. And then the other end of the spectrum where people are so scared or anxious about having a medical complication from diabetes that they really want to have that tight, tight, you know, blood sugar range with that flat glucose line and that affects their lived experience as well. Absolutely. And I think anytime, even when I'm working with people with other chronic conditions, cancers and whatnot, when we are living our life, making all of our decisions from a fear base, it's going to impact our ability to be fully present and to enjoy the life that we're in there is a beautiful life with all of these chronic illnesses that we work with. It's understanding how do I remain safe? What are my backup plans? And then not letting those things hold us back and still engage in life.
0: Yeah. It's, it's perspective, right? And it's, it, it's gratitude and and trying to see where you can reach for that gratitude and where you can reach for the, you know, not to be cheesy, but the, you know, where the glasses is, is half full, right? When you have somebody who is in a state of like darkness, right? Like somebody who is just like diabetes, like I feel horrible and I can't believe this happened to me. And why can't I, you know, just go about my day and not have to worry about this like my friends do or like don't have to or my family. Like what is the first step that you take or you would take with somebody to move the needle closer to, you know, away from those feelings of just darkness towards light, if you will?
1: Uh, I first always validate that experience for people because it is a grieving process that we have to go through. Um, even when we're first diagnosed or, you know, anytime we get another complication or there's a change We're we're already working so hard that these things can be, they can feel really overwhelming and they can feel devastating. So, uh, it's okay to cry and feel overwhelmed and feel like you've had your feet taken out from under you because you, you did. Um, I think over time, what we do is help people recognize that there is a beautiful life with diabetes or with other chronic illnesses. It's learning how to use your tools, create a really robust toolbox and be flexible in those tools and be, be flexible, you know, in your plans Um, if we change plans or, you know, need to make some type of a change incrementally for whether it's pain or diabetes or, you know, sugar related, that it doesn't mean that we're failing at life or that the, the experiences we are having aren't, won't be full of joy and won't be full of pleasure. It just means that they're going to coexist together and that's okay. And I, I see this for a lot of my clients that I work with for their mental health as well. Sometimes people have this idea in life that in order to be happy that that means the absence of suffering or the absence of sadness. And that's actually not true. Our um, minds and our bodies can experience pain and pleasure at the same time, just as we can experience joy and sadness. We can laugh and cry. And so to help people understand and normalize that our bodies can have pain, our bodies can have disease. It doesn't mean that we can't reach goals, have joy, have laughter, have pleasure. We just need to... Allow ourselves to see it and permit it to come in. It's already there.
0: While you were talking, it reminds me I have a running list on my phone of just quotes, things I think of, or things that I hear, you know, or read other people say. And one that I wrote down recently is if you expect life to be hard, living gets easier. And that really, you know, resonated with me because it's almost like if you expect life, there not to be struggle, there not to be challenges that come up, health wise or anything, right? When that happens, it feels like you just got, you know, hit by a truck. Versus, you know what? Like I have. I have overcome so many of challenges that have happened in the past and like this is part of life. Challenges are part of life and this is no different. Like I can get to the other side of this and that other side of it doesn't look like not having diabetes anymore, but it looks like living in harmony with it and not trying to forget it, avoid it, push it away, come into a better relationship with it.
1: Yeah. 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 There's actually, I can't remember her name. There's a famous therapist though, who talks about how to make sure we all have, you know, really realistic expectations and goals for our mental health. And one of the things she talks about is you can't have a dead person goal, right? And a dead person goal would be, well, I don't want to suffer in life anymore because the absence Hmm. of suffering is someone who's not alive. That's really the only time when someone is alive and breathing that there is no suffering happening. Um, And so we have to make sure that we understand, maybe I want my suffering to not last as long, or maybe I don't want it to be as intense, or maybe I want help recognizing the joy that's happening simultaneously with the suffering. But we can't have a goal of no suffering in life because that's just part of the lived experience. It is actually a gift. It helps us recognize the good things that are happening in our life.
0: Mm. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like Suffering and challenges are a mirror to the things that we have to work on because it it illuminates and magnifies the fears or what we're uncom- what feels uncomfortable, what feels mm-hmm. like it gives us anxiety, and it's like that is the next area to kind of grow into.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there is no growth without change, and there is no change that's comfortable. In all honesty, so what I I help. People, what, especially when you talk about anxiety, um, because what happens to a lot of us is you become anxious or fearful of something, and so you don't go to that dinner, or you don't, you know, go do that workout, or you don't try that new food, Um, you don't go on that trip, you don't see that family member, right? And so our lived experience gets smaller and smaller and smaller, but the consequence of that is the anxiety continues to grow because that's that is their dual relationship, and so if you if you shrink your living experience, the anxiety is continued to get so big that it takes over your life and your lived experience is this. But if you learn to push back, be uncomfortable, it's okay to be uncomfortable doing these things. Your lived experience will grow and the anxiety over time will actually get better.
0: Oh, I love, love, love that analogy. I've never heard it said like that. I think how I've tended to think about it is if you keep pushing, pushing down, pushing down, pushing down, it's almost like uh, like a spring, where it's eventually going to pop back in the opposite direction, and when it springs, right. that to me is when it overflows and you're beyond your emotional capacity, and you're in that place of then burnout and that can't. How do I now, like, yeah. you know, get back from this? Yeah. With with the diabetes distress and burnout, um, in my experience and what we have found, you know, working with hundreds of people. In coaching and risely is that it is such a spectrum, and that there's nobody who lives with diabetes that doesn't have some sort of distress and anxiety. But there is a difference between people who have it in s- certain times, right? Like they're moving and they're getting married and they're, you know, at the same time, their technology is breaking and right, and they're distressed and they feel overwhelmed and like diabetes, they can't do that, and that's temporary versus. Right you know, people who have this underlying, like you're talking about this anxiety, this, the sense of it's a little bit more permanent. And then that also Mm -hmm. scales to, is it just like, what level are we, are you, you know, are you distressed? Are you burnt out? Where are you at? So what is, what has been your outlook on that piece?
1: Well, let me make sure I I understand the question. So are you asking what's the kind of the differentiator between typical diabetes distress or, um, or is it anxiety or something else going on?
0: Yeah, like let's talk about distress and, and burnout in that piece, and the the differences and and the spectrum of of different people who can experience that.
1: So distress and burnout happens to over half of people who are diagnosed with diabetes, any type. Uh, so we we all you know can experience it at any time. Um, we do know typically at first diagnosis uh, we tend to see it when there's another medical complication we tend to see it or, uh, another diagnosis, maybe a completely separate disease. Um, it can occur. Uh, you know, I see also just in general, like life stressors, uh, a lot of people are working really hard in our society, um, losing jobs, having family members that get sick, having children, you know, that, um, may need some additional support, um, really anything. And I think it's not just like diabetes that gets us there necessarily. It's, We all have like a stress threshold. And if when enough things kind of compound and happen, we've been pushed past our threshold and we just need to figure out how to get through that specifically for diabetes distress. You know, I see the range too. some of it is like treatment related. Um, Some of it is that they need additional education and support and and really just more tools on how to manage the day to day life of diabetes Um, you know, how to exercise and feel safe, Um, you know, how to eat that meal that they loved, Um, how to sleep and feel safe, Um, just kind of like the day-to-day activities of of living with this, not understanding insulin, what they're using, its onset, its duration. So some of it is just like basic, um, let's help you feel confident with information and how to manage through some of these situations. Um, Some of it's like, family or provider induced you know they don't feel understood by their family or feel judged or um, they don't feel like their provider team is supportive they're struggling Um, so there's a lot of reasons why people can get distressed and it can happen at any time i really just do an individual approach helping people really it takes me a, a little bit to get to know what's going on and then we start to pick what i kind of call what's on fire what do we need to put out today Making sure you're functioning, you're going to work, you know, you're able to eat meals, you're safe, and then we can start to pull through some of the other um, target issues that you have that weren't as big, but are still really bothering you in the long run.
0: Hmm. Yeah. All all the challenges that you mentioned, it really ranges from more tactical, physical to the emotional yeah. and the mental side. And I, yeah, I, I'm surprised 50% is the is the number. I would actually think that it's a it's higher than that. I think I have a skewed perception though, because obviously the people that I'm interacting with most or that our team is interacting with most are the ones reaching out for help. But it seems to 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 us that most people are either in a stage of feeling lost or just like a cycle of frustration with their diabetes. And it varies in, in that degree. But yeah, I mean... There's also so much shame for people not reaching out for help. And I think that's something that I would love to talk to you about as well, which is you feel like, oh, I've had diabetes for 10, 20 years. This is either A, just how it should be. And nobody can really help me get better because this is diabetes is hard. Or my doctor told me when I was diagnosed, like, yep, this is a challenge that you're just always going to have to deal with. And you have this idea that it can't be a different lived experience or B, I've had it for so long. Or I'm a healthcare practitioner myself, maybe, and I people come to me for advice. Or I'm the caregiver; I take care of other people. Like I should be able to figure this out for myself. So, have you seen that the people that come to you or the people that you've interacted with with diabetes also have been struggling for a while before reaching out for help?
1: Yeah, I um, yes, I see both. I see some people who reach out right away and feel comfortable. Talking about it. Um, I think it helps that I am a type one as well. So people feel a lot more comfortable just coming in for the appointment when they hear um, because there is a lot of uh, gaslighting and stuff that still happens in our medical community. Unfortunately, sometimes that's its own barrier, especially if someone has a diagnosis of something that occurred, you know, when they were uh, in elementary school or an adolescent. It's a long time, it's a, a lifetime of getting exposed to some of the. On non-therapeutic conversations that can happen in a doctor's office. So, and and I get that. Um, I would say, just as I work, as I also work with a lot of people who have ADHD, I find when people are actually diagnosed at a younger age, a lot of their understanding of the um, diagnosis and the things that we use to help people manage. Um, is actually missing some pretty important information because when you're younger, you have parents and a medical team around you kind of managing and telling you what to do. And then you become a young adult. And like all of us, we um, don't really know what we're doing in our twenties. <laughs> so it takes time to you know learn <laughs> stuff, but we're busy. Like as human beings, we're just so busy. Everybody's working so hard to pay their bills and pay their loans and all of that stuff. So there isn't always a lot of time to really Dive into what else could be out there. Learn about more insulins. Learn about some other food techniques you could use. Learn about other types of exercise. We're busy. We're busy people, and so sometimes it just takes coming to somebody who specializes in it and does this all day long to be able to learn that stuff because you don't want to spend three months on uh, TikTok and Google trying to figure out how to help yourself.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And there's two separate things I'm hearing. One is the there's gaps that are missing during diagnosis because. You can't shove everything down the person's or the family's throat, right? It's like there's, it's, I mean, it would be nice to have more of an extended, let's say week long educational boot camp. go to school. But at the same time, you're also processing so many emotions that I don't even know if they're, especially because people are honeymooning, if it would be applicable for them then to learn those things, it's more of the extended over the next, you know, few years, um, and making sure that people are getting that that information, and then also you talked about ADHD, which do you know? And I don't want to put you on the spot, but are there stats that you know of adults living with ADHD, or like what percentages of people living with even diabetes have ADHD? Because I found that that is a really tough um, thing that people struggle with for when you have ADHD and type one diabetes, because type one is so much about decisions and making space to follow through and connecting the dots between this moment and an hour from now or two hours from now when I go to the gym and what am I going to do now? All of that.
1: Yeah. I do certainly have um, people who have both a diagnosis of ADHD and um, diabetes type one, type two, some other ones. There is some, you know, we always have to Assess also the the actual state of the diabetes that the person has, because there is a direct influence on cognitive performance uh, with blood sugar. Um, you know, we know that blood sugar, when it's getting above one eighty, it's impacting our ability to form memory and um, our visual and auditory processing. And so, we want to make sure that the any executive function or cognitive performance issues that we're seeing isn't because of the diabetes component, like how do we help this person regulate their sugar so that they get, you know, are, are meeting their cognitive performance goals as well? Um, but that doesn't mean that ADHD doesn't exist in people with type diabetes as well. And so then we're really helping people understand both. How do we help you um, in, with a neurodiverse brain? Uh, you know, remember to do the tasks that you need to do, do things in sequential order not feel overwhelmed um, sensory-wise, be able to, you know, meet those kind of like day-to-day goals and emotional regulation, also big with diabetes, but also big with um, ADHD as well. There's a lot of emotional component there. So you you really have to help both areas. Um, And that's true with anybody else who has a diagnosis of ADHD and, you know, like bipolar disorder, you really have to be targeting both things and managing both things for the best outcomes. But You know, people live really, again, great, fantastic lives with all of those diagnoses. So it's just giving them tools. I really help people. Like I find in my job, my approach is my role is to help educate people about what their options are. These are um, why we would choose this medication because it's going to target serotonin. And this is what we know serotonin does for people. And you have symptoms that you're hoping to target. So that's what we're going to use. This is what we expect to see. This is what the risk is. And just give them you know this is why we use this type of therapy. this is why we 're going to talk about it this way. How do you feel? Is this something you're interested in? How do you feel about the risk? How do you feel about the benefit? The decision is ultimately yours i 'm just giving you the information to make an informed decision because you are in charge of your your health
0: mm-hmm. absolutely and And to that point too, that other mental health challenges that come up with the anxiety and depression and You know, I'm sure a list of other things, but those are the top two that come to mind. um, That the blood sugars alone, and just improving A1C, we found has enhanced a person's you know mood and um, happiness when they're waking up in the morning. All of that, so it really does play a big, a big, big, big role. And I used to think my numbers were crazy when I was a teenager, and I thought I was like a moody teenager who just wanted to sleep all day and just would get so, so irritable. And it was, yes, probably teenage things. But now that I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, like so much of it was you were 400 and then you were 50 and then you were 300 and then you were 120 and then you were bouncing up all over, all over the place. And I feel it like now with my blood sugars, I don't know if you can feel this, but because my time and range and my standard deviation like is so tight, when I'm 190, I'm, I feel that headache and it's not great because obviously, you know, I do go to 190. It's not perfect, but it's, it really does. Um, it's in in a way good because to me, it's like your body is adapted to feeling that sluggish and it it should feel sluggish at that number.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can, uh, I do get effects when my blood sugar is above 180. Start to get a headache. Um, My Mm -hmm. thoughts are slower. It was it was really interesting, you know, for the scientific side of my um, brain uh, to see to like feel the effects of glucose um, when it's high, when it's low, when it's shifting really quickly in either direction. You know, you read about things in textbooks and stuff, uh, but to actually experience it is is a whole different uh, animal. So it's definitely taught me a lot about which kind of is a gift for me because I I got this as an adult. And so when I talk to people about their cognitive performance and what blood glucose is doing, you know, to their ability to even think or make decisions or control their emotions for people who've had it since they were children, they don't know any different. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't know that that's not the way that other brains work. And that part of what's happening to them that they feel out of control about is that blood sugar that's shifting. And so being able to help them understand, you know, outside of risk and long-term complications and you know, safety, but to understand that you actually can have more control over your emotions and feel better about yourself physically and mentally if you're able to achieve a little bit more control. I don't and I don't ever want anyone to think like, oh, I need to have that flat line, really, you know, okay. tight standard deviation. Um, Our line moving is is a a good indicator that we're living and that's okay. But knowing how to prevent those really big shifts in either direction and also how to care for ourselves and be Mm -hmm. uh, self forgiving and empathetic when it's happening, give ourselves space and time to recover. That's really important to like recognizing oh, I I actually may be really grumpy right now because my blood sugar is out of range and this is my grumpy space. And so how do I care for myself and also communicate to the people around me that that's what's going on?
0: Oh, that's such a great um, little phrase. Did you say grumpy phase? is that what you said? Grumpy
1: space. <laughs> Great. Grumpy
0: space, grumpy face, yeah. grumpy space. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's, you know, um, a lot of times we have challenge communicating with our partners, like mm-hmm. how it feels or our family members, how it feels, or we even have a hard time saying like my, Hey, my blood sugar, you're asking me to do 10 things right now. My blood sugar is high. Like I can do that, but I want to like punch you in the face right now. So can you, yep. <laughs> can, can you give me a half an hour? And that could be a fun, um, I don't know if fun's the right word, but like um, an interesting way to describe or just like a language you can use. I'm saying you, meaning anybody who's listening right now yeah. that you can use, like partner or family of like, hey, my new thing is like, I don't, maybe I'm not going to tell you what my blood sugar is, but I will, my code word will kind of be, I'm in my grumpy place. Like, and yeah. you just know, yeah. all right, give give Lauren some space or give whoever mm-hmm. some space. Mm-hmm. That's so mm-hmm. good. Okay, I'll give yeah. credit to you. I'm probably going to use yeah. that a lot. But I will <laughs> be like, "Oh, listen to the episode with Bria, and you'll understand what the grubby place is."
1: <laughs> well, we also, um, I also help people do like nonverbal communication because you know we, whether whatever's going on, there's all sorts of reasons why having a family member ask, "Are you okay? What can I do for you right now?" Sometimes just that verbal like uh, input is too much for us, and so it's okay to agree on emojis or a nonverbal cue of some sort. Um, Like I'm going to send you my thumbs down emoji. That means wherever I am, leave me be, give me that 30 minutes. And you can kind of agree to it in your household, what that looks like, but that's okay. It's okay to just share in a nonverbal way with each other, how we're feeling and make a plan of like how to help, you know, what I need in those moments and how you can support me. Um, a lot of people think like, oh, you need to be there. You know, they're, they they need my physical support. I need to help them talk through it. Sometimes we're incredibly supportive by not physically being present too. That's actually a mm-hmm. way we, we can show people we love each other is to pull back a
0: bit. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, and it's also a plan that you can make ahead of time when you are yes. in- A non grumpy place, right? So that you don't have to go through that when you're not feeling great. Because I know that that's that's the case for me personally. Like, I want space more than anything when I'm low. And I just need like space and patience from my husband and whoever's around me. And it takes and feels like it just takes so much effort in that moment to even just say, like, and explain. I have a high blood sugar or my blood sugar is this because you feel like there's going to be follow-up questions or there's going to be needing, you would need to exert more energy to explain yourself or what's going on. It's just easier sometimes to just not say anything, but then you're being grumpy and someone's just like, what is wrong with her? (laughs) So,
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's hard too because as family members, you know, we always want to care for each other. And sometimes we want to, when we see that there's a problem, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to help problem solve this with you so it's usually in an effort of caring, like, what happened? Why is your blood sugar high or did too much insulin? And when it's happening, uh, no, I don't want to talk about it. Right. <laughs> it's just, I can care for myself. I'm safe. My husband is a very like engineering brain. That was a hard, mm-hmm. it was a hard transition for us because diabetes was never in our marriage and it's, it's his own entity, right? Mm-hmm. And so learning how to communicate and have a whole nother third person in your marriage and, and how that affects our, my emotional stability and our communication. Um, and my sweet, loving engineer brain husband would constantly want to ask, why did this happen so we can have, make sure it never ever happens again? And I had to help him understand I don't need you to fix this for me. I need you to show me love by giving me space. And so that's something we had to navigate over time.
0: Yeah. Wow. I think that's going to relate to a lot of people. I men in general, not to stereotype, but I do feel like oh, they they yeah. they really a lot of people, um, a lot of husbands will want to solve the problem, and with all love and and kindness and good intent. But that's you know not always what what we need. I'm so glad we got to talk about the partner part, because that's not something that I had, you know, planned for us to talk about, but I think a lot of people will appreciate. So, um, I feel like we touched on so much. We, you know, talked about a bunch of different things and I want to leave, um, if you can share with people who are in Oregon, like where can they find you? How can they get connected with you? You know, potentially work with you, if that makes sense, where would you send them? Plug yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people can actually access my schedule just right from my website. So it's, um, pbh.health. Um, and I'm sure I can give you the link to share with people as well. I do take several major insurances and I see people ages 10 and above, and I see people all over the state because my practice is primarily telehealth. So, and, and I always, even when my panel's full, I always try really hard to make room for anyone who's a diabetic looking for help.
0: Amazing. Well, we'll add you to our internal resource list for coaching members at Rise Loop 2 And um, we'll put all your links in, in the show notes. So anyone listening who is in Bria's area, you can click below, look in the show notes and get connected. But thank you so much for just such a wonderful conversation and for sharing your, your lived experience and professional experience with us. And um, yes, yeah, so just appreciate you.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here with me today and listening to this episode of Reclaim Your Rise. To let us know that the episodes we're putting out are impactful and to help us get our street cred up and let everyone else know that this is something worthy of their time to listen to, please leave a rating and review on our Apple podcast, send the show to other people impacted by T1D or maybe even your doctor, and share it on social media tagging at Risely Health and at Lauren underscore Bongiorno. New episodes of Reclaim Your Rise come out every single Tuesday, so make sure you are subscribed to the podcast so that you never miss a beat. Thanks again for listening, and as always, remember, diabetes is a challenge that we did not choose, but one that we can rise above.